0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. From Neon Hum Media, Smokescreen's newest second season, I Am Rama, tells the story of spiritual teacher Dr. Frederick Lenz III, better known as Rama, through the eyes of his students, some who loved him and others who denounce him to this day. Hosted by award-winning journalist Jonathan Hirsch of acclaimed podcast, Dear Franklin Jones. Subscribe and listen to Smokescreen I Am Rama on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming this summer to a screen near you. The International Cultic Studies Association is conducting its 2021 Annual International Conference jointly with Infosect InfoCult of Montreal and the Association Québécoise Plaidoyer Victime, July 1st through 3rd, 2021. ICSA's Annual Conference draws former group members, families, helping professionals, researchers, lawyers, educators, and the general public from around the world. This year's event will have four simultaneous tracks, including one in French, and workshops available. Selected sessions will also be translated in French and English. There will be over 50 presentations to choose from. Missed a session? Not a problem. This will be the first conference where almost all of the presentations will be available to registrants for up to 30 days after the event. This year's event includes some familiar faces and some first-time presenters at an ICSA conference. We are also excited to feature a number of French speakers. Some of the presentations include Alice's Mushrooms, a Culture and QAnon, Insights after hundreds of cult member interventions since 1980, by Joseph Zimhardt. Scientology's legal system, by Phil Lord. Lived experiences of lesbian, gay, and bisexual former cult members. Counseling implications, by Cindy Matthews. And many, many more subjects. This conference will also feature the Phoenix Project, free and open to all, This program reveals the realities of an individual's cult experience through creative works of art, writing, and performance. The cost for the conference in US dollars, for regular registration, 150, for student registration, 80, and financial assistance is available. To sign up for our upcoming ICSA International Conference, The Phoenix Project, and more, visit icsahome.com slash events slash conference annual. We hope to see you at the event. Hi, everybody. Sometimes there is a guest on the show. Actually, this happens a lot of times on the show, which is quite a blessing, where there is a guest who makes a huge impression, where there is so much feedback, so many people writing in saying they felt inspired, saying they could relate, even if their story was different in some of the details, they could relate with other parts of it, and they were so happy to have the guests talk about how their lives had been turned around. In fact, they found themselves crying or they found themselves cheering when they were hearing their story and feeling strengthened by it, feeling reassured by it, that it was possible. So, as promised, today we have Christopher Buckley back on the show. and. He is joined by his wife, Melissa. Melissa is the one who planned the intervention to get him out of the KKK. And they'll both be talking today about their stories from each of their perspectives, but also talking about the love between them and how she knew there was still that spark of goodness in him worthy of saving. Christopher Buckley lives in georgia and is an afghanistan and iraqi war veteran when he returned from iraq he joined the georgia white knights as an imperial nighthawk because their anti-muslim and racist values were consistent with his worldview at the time after returning from war arno michaelis a former white power skinhead and dr hevel muhammad kelly a kurdish muslim refugee were able to teach Chris the error of his ways and helped bring him out of the movement. And today, he volunteers at The Haven in Georgia, a local organization that helps homeless and drug addicts. He also gives motivational speeches trying to spread awareness and educate the public about the dangers of white supremacist extremism. Chris now works with Dr. Kelly on a program called Help, Heal, Love where they work to repair flawed thinking in hate groups and spread a message of love and healing. He also created a de-radicalization program designed specifically with veterans in mind, but is geared to work with all manners of hate and extremist ideology. And today, he's joined by his wife, Melissa Buckley. She's a key person in helping her husband leave the Ku Klux Klan. She realized that the KKK was damaging to Chris and to their children and wanted a healthier path for the well-being of her entire family. She searched online to try and find someone to help her get Chris out of the KKK, and found Arno McEllis, a former white power skinhead and Parents for Peace advisory board member. Over a several-month period, Melissa worked with Arno to help pull Chris out of the dangerous extremism he had become involved with, And thanks to the support of Melissa and Arno, Chris is now an inspirational model that spreads awareness about the dangers of white supremacist extremism and teaches others how to help their family members who have become involved with extremism. Come meet Melissa now and hear Chris on the show for the second time. I am so grateful for Melissa and Chris in general, but also especially because they made the time to speak with us today on the show. For those of you who heard Chris the last time, and that was many of you, many thousands of you actually, who got to hear his interview, there were, because of time constraints, some parts of the story that we needed to kind of skip over. And one of the things that people have been really asking about is, What happened? How did an intervention take place? And how does one do that? So we'll get into that part of the story. But Chris, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself again to the listeners and then Melissa, go ahead.
1: My name is Chris Buckley. I am a former white supremacist and combat veteran, also a recovered drug addict, and now a member of Parents for Peace who is a nonprofit organization that deals with the intervention, prevention, and long-term care realm of violent extremism. And this is my wife, Melissa Buckley.
2: Hello, my name is Melissa. I reached out after um, several encounters, dangerous encounters with Chris being the Ku Klux Klan, and I reached out to receive help to get him out of this organization.
0: Wonderful. So it's a gift to him and to you and to your family that you did it, but it seems to be a gift to many people who are receiving the gifts of him being involved in an organization now and you being involved in an organization that does such important life-changing work. Melissa, if you don't mind, people have had a chance to get to know Chris's background a little and who he is. So if you don't mind giving a little history on, on you and who you are, where you were raised, what you do, all of it.
2: Um, I was born in Hazard, Kentucky. Um, I grew up in a what they call a holler. Um, we did not have a lot of things. If it was not grown in the yard, raised in the yard, we didn't have it. Um, I grew up in a very religious home. I was raised Pentecostal, so very, very strict. I moved to Uh, Georgia, whenever I was younger, I had suffered a pretty tragic time in school. Um, I had some things done to me by former students, so they uprooted me and moved me to Georgia because in Kentucky, the laws are whack, so there was never anything done about what had happened to me in school. They moved me down here to Georgia. Um, I was raised here for about four years, and we moved back to Kentucky. Then whenever I was like 11 or 12, we moved back to Georgia and pretty much stayed. I graduated high school in 2007. I suffered a lot of issues with classmates and stuff like that due to what had happened to me. You know, I was put in foster care for a period of time growing up. And after I graduated, you know, I kind of like, rebelled a little bit because I was raised this way. And I was like, you know, I never got to experience anything. So that was my way of experiencing. It was rebelling. In 2009, I had went to Kentucky to see my family because they had suffered a flood in 2009 in Jackson, Kentucky. That is where I met Chris. I met him in May of 2009. And we have been together since June of 2009. I pretty much packed up, rooted And went to Ohio, was on a Greyhound bus for, what, a a day and a half, not knowing anything was, like, what was going to happen. And we've been together since. Um, Whenever we first got together, he had just got back from overseas. So there was a lot of, like, drinking involved, which I'm sure happens a lot with troops who come home. That's where our issues started. He was with the alcohol at first, and then it was after he broke his back. It was to the opiates. So it was literally like come home, alcohol, opiates, and then it was just downhill from there. It was hard, but I knew that when, well, I'm not going to say that I knew because it was it was a battle for me and him to get together because it was like, nope, 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 nope. And then it didn't just happen. But um, I knew that once I got with him that he was the person that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And I knew at that point that a lot of people in my family was like, you know, you just need to leave because of his PTSD. And I was like, you don't understand. You can't just walk away from somebody that you love like that.
0: Right. Okay. Even with all of that, first of all, just starting a a relationship, basically, with someone who's just come back from fighting and is dealing often with PTSD, as you're saying, you're in for a bumpy ride and right. But there was something about Chris that you sensed even with all the other stuff going on. And so what was it about him? Even with all the alcohol, all of that, what did you see in him?
2: I knew that the person that I, that I first met, I knew that there was something wrong with him. Like Damn. nothing bad, but I knew that <laughs> I knew that Damn. there was there was something with him uh-huh. that that there was a battle going on with him. And I, I had battles within myself. There was things that I was battling with at all times, and I knew that he was battling things. And I never realized how much a person can change from from what the things that they deal with. And With him, I seen, you know, him getting out of the military and him losing that brotherhood. That was a drastic change for him. So he was like in this mode of, I have to find something to make that same, the area that I was like the brotherhood. He wanted to fulfill that spot with another area because he was missing out on that. He didn't have it anymore. But I knew that whenever I seen him going through this phase, I knew that that wasn't the person that I met. I knew that there was more than what I didn't see was going on. He was dealing with more.
0: I want to be able to ask you about that time because, you know, there are times that you can see that someone is judging you. And other times you're surrounded by people who are trying to understand. Sounds like Melissa was trying to understand. And she also didn't see you as this troubled person, but that you had been through so much that you were carrying the after effects of so much. And so what was it like to be seen that way, to kind of be understood rather than just dismissed and judged?
1: I never thought about it. And that's a really good question. It was a different environment. You know, you you deal with judgment in every aspect of your life, whether it be at work, in recreation, in public. There's always somebody that's looking at you and forming an opinion based off of no information. You know, but with with Melissa, you know, she made that effort to to try to understand what it was that I was dealing with. You know what I mean? I don't know if it in, in some ways it was kind of an enablement to further the the cycle of falling into, you know, the the mindset of what i was dealing with the extremism and the and the racism and the hate but on the other hand it was the conflict of compassion it was the conflict of compassion meeting the hatred that it retarded the progress you know what i mean so you, you hear people that'll be like well by 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 allowing it and and by uh, trying to understand it and being you know passive and dismissive about it you're an enabler. You're you're, and it's like you know, it's a really contrasting type of of environment. And until you experience it, you don't really understand what enablement is. And it's easy for somebody who sees a drug addict and sees that mom that'll give them ten dollars and it's like, well, you're just enabling it. But you don't understand the dynamics of that. You know what I mean? And while it is enabling, in a, in another way, it's also it's their way of keeping you safe. You know what I mean? Because when you can't, we can't express what's going on inside of you at home. You go somewhere else to do it. And when you go somewhere else, that's where you end up dead, locked up in jail. You, you know, or, or if we move back to the drug situation, you end up overdosed <laughs> with a needle in your arm. And mom's like, "Ah, see, when he did the drugs here, I could I could keep an eye on him, and if he if something happened, I could." I could call the 911, you know, and, and like, you know, there's all kinds of different reasons that people slip into the enabler role.
0: Right. Exactly. And you know, the reason I that I focus on it is that I see it a lot in my work with people who are, who have loved ones, who have gotten involved in bad relationships or cultic groups. They don't want to just come out really strong and say, you know, you need out of this and this is a cult or that person's a, tremendous narcissist, what are you doing with them? But instead to kind of have a more gentle footing and keep the communication going and keep it feeling like it's safe, Because otherwise, sometimes you can push the person away, that relationship ends. Well, and, and what
1: she was doing, and I understand it now, but at the time, I just thought that she was on my side. You know, she was keeping the lines of communication open enough to where I could tell her what was going on. And that way, if something did happen, she was able to communicate with whoever she needed to, to, to help out and, you know, find me or, you know, whatever happened, you know?
0: Right. Exactly. Okay. So that was good. I mean, you, you know, Melissa, you had a, a way, maybe just a natural way of trying to figure out how to, how to do that balancing act. That's a hard one.
2: It really was because like, I had a lot of my friends and family with that, would that wouldn't even have anything to do with me because they was like, you know, you're standing by this, you're you're condoning it, you're okay with it. And I'm like, no, I'm you know, I've got that family that is mixed race. I'm not okay with this. You know, my best friend is gay. I can't, I'm not okay with this. In the same token, this was the man that I loved. This was the father of my children. And I couldn't let him get out of my sight because I'm in fear of, you know, what's going to happen if he's not here with me, what's going to happen?
0: Exactly right. Exactly right. Like you're going to leave him unanchored. Right. And it's interesting. So you come from a family that's mixed race and your best friend is gay. So just inherently, you're not going to be okay with this. Uh, right. But you were okay with him because you saw him. And that's a very fascinating kind of distinction. So You then noticed some dangerous things that were going on, and I'm curious what those were. What are some of the things, and maybe Chris, you can talk about that too, what were some of the dangerous things that you think were really getting Melissa worried about you?
1: I think the first red flag that she was like, I've got to do something now. What I'm doing by just listening and and trying to rationalize is not working anymore was I started to get my son involved with what I was doing. I would take him to rallies. I would let him interact with the other people. And there's actually a documentary that we did while I was still in called The Fight for White Supremacy. And you can actually, like I was at the height of my addiction. I was I was using probably four grams of methamphetamine every two days. And I was maybe 110 pounds. I, I had him at a rally and we had him a little robe made. And he was four, you know, and he barely talked, but he was running around throwing a white power salute, yelling white power. And my wife at that point, she was like, enough. It's over. It ends today. And, uh, you know, I, I think that that experience coupled with people in the community knowing what I was doing and who I was and what I belonged to and the confrontations that she encountered. Without my presence, you know, people would approach her and try to attack her and, and harm her and the kids while they were out in public. She, it became a safety issue that she was like, this is it. It's over. It's done. It's either the clan or it's me and the kids.
0: Wow. So interesting. So well, this documentary, kind of curious to see it. I don't know if it's too hard for you to watch it.
1: No, no, I've, I've watched it. It keeps my rearview mirror clear, if that makes sense. You know, so like when you drive a car every now and then you glance up that rearview mirror to just. Make sure that behind you still behind you. And, uh, you know, while we've sanitized our house and, and every aspect of our memorabilia, like there's no pictures, there's no robes, I don't have any of that shit anymore. You know, we got rid of all of it. But I think it's healthy to every now and then just revisit what you had been a part of and how far you've come. And it continues to build that motivation to move forward and keep doing the The work that others are depending on now, just the way I was depending on it when it came time for my intervention.
0: So interesting. And I think also just the fact that your four-year-old was there and was involved and doing his thing. And I think so many people raised in these communities. It's not necessarily who they are, but it was what they knew.
1: It's nurture over nature. So, I mean, it's not human nature to be this way, you know what I mean? It's 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 a nurtured behavior, you know? It's learned, it's, it's cultivated. It's kind of like somebody who grows up in a cult doesn't know they're in a cult, you know what I mean? Everybody else knows, but they don't know. And when you change the environment, you change the surroundings, uh, those people tend to adapt and they have this cognitive shift to where the beliefs that they have no longer are able to sustain their 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 way of life anymore does does that make sense
0: absolutely
1: yeah so when you remove the person from the environment the belief system changes to reflect the current environment and the current information that's being received and transmitted
0: very well said yes exactly right Exactly right. I think it's a really good point to remember. I think also sometimes people will remember the camaraderie, like you're looking for that connection. And for him, it could have just been, well, this is time I get to spend with dad.
1: That's all it was. He has always wanted to just be my shadow. I mean, he looks exactly like me. We are twins. He just, he emulates me in every way. And, you know, the drug addicted, drug fueled dad in me was like, hell yeah, man, just like dad, I'm teaching him right. But well, like we talked before, you know, like what came first, the chicken or the egg, what comes first sobriety or leaving this group, you know, sobriety had to come first for me. And when sobriety come first, that inner me, my inner self, my true self was able to, to break out. And I started to realize that like, oh my God, I am allowing my child to inherit this hate that I have for myself and for others, you know, I mean, and that's not okay.
0: Right. I'm allowing my child to inherit this hate. Wow. Very powerful. So, right. So for you, Melissa, this was it. That was like the line that couldn't be crossed. And that's what made you act. Or was there something else also that just as we're getting to the point where you reached out to parents for peace, what, is there anything else that happened?
2: So like he was saying, you know, people was, you know, attacking me to get to him. Um, well, I had went to. I had my daughter. She was maybe eight months old at the time. She
1: wasn't a year.
2: I, I had went to our local Walmart, and
1: of course, Walmart went, went
2: to, <laughs> to get diaper wipes.
1: No I, white, no white supremacy story is complete without your local Walmart.
2: Right. So <laughs> I had I
0: went in, You
2: know, I had parked on the the right hand side. You know, the grocery side. Went in, got my diaper wipes, come back out. As I was coming out, I noticed that there was. Three black females, you know, I've I've seen these girls in the community before. They're really nice girls, never had any issues out of them or anything. And I had one coming to the front of me, one coming to the the right side of me, and one coming behind me. And you know, I noticed that as I was getting closer to the vehicle, they was approaching in closer. As this is going on, there is a police officer sitting in the parking lot. They come in closer on me. I'm trying to put my child into the car seat, and they're like, We know who you are. We know who your husband is and we're going to get you from what you're what you're allowing to happen. And I was like, look, you know, I'm terrified. I'm trying to get my child in the car. I was like, look, whatever you guys feel the need to take place. So be it. Just please let me get my child out of here. You know, and they had talked about, you know, even coming to our home and trying if they can't get to him, they're going to get to me, get to our kids just to get to to get him. And I come home, I was upset. I took my daughter inside and I was like, this is it. I'm, I'm done with this. You know, I can't even go out into the public without being approached of people, from people that's upset with what you're doing. And they have every right to be upset. And they're attacking me to get to him. They're attacking my children to get to him. And you know, my son was getting ready to start school and I'm just like, I can't allow my child to go to school with these beliefs. And I told him, I was like, you know, it's, it's time to quit. It's time for you to stop. And he was like, well, this is my life. And if you don't like it, then so be it. And I was like, there has to be someone out there that's been through what I'm going through or somebody out there that's willing to help. And I sent out that email thinking that nothing was going to happen. And here we are.
0: And here we are. Right. Okay. So I just want to say something about that story of being surrounded. I mean, you're right. They have every right to be really mad about what was going on and the Klan in general and the whole history of the Klan. And who knows how, mu- how many people in their families dire- were directly affected by the Klan or other groups like it, because it's not the only group certainly out there doing this and having these ideals and ideas about what's best in this world and who is best in this world. But there's this idea of guilt by association, right? And so that's where you were smack in the middle that you were being associated with having the same ideas you or you must have them just because you're married to this person. And that was not the case at all, right? So, okay, yeah, enough, right? It it just was getting, it, it was kind of finding its way into your home. All right, so you made this call to Parents for Peace. You found them online?
2: Um, no, I had actually, it sounds crazy, but I typed into Google search bar and I had typed in how to get a loved one out of a hate group. And Arno Michaelis was the first name that came up. And I read his story, I got his contact information, and I was like, why not just send an email and see if he replies? And two weeks out had went by and I was just like, let's check the emails. And I see that he has replied and he was like, you know, I think the first thing that we need to do is work on sobriety. And I'm thinking, you know, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, he's, he's pretty shot out, but in the same token, that's not my biggest worry. It's, you know, this is my family and what's going to happen. And, you know, he was like, how about I just come there? and we work on this, and I was like, oh, no, (laughs) because I was raised, you don't speak to another male outside your marriage. You you work on your marriage through your husband, and you do that in the home, and here it is. I'm stepping out, and I'm thinking, this ain't going to be good. It was hard to watch at first because I seen the battle, and I seen that Arno never once gave up,
0: So interesting. So this battle, from your perspective, what did you see? And then I want to hear from Chris about that battle. So what did you notice happening, Melissa? What was the battle?
2: Um, I noticed a very stubborn individual that was in his prime of addiction. He literally dug his heels in and was like, I'm not changing. This is me. And if you can't accept me for me, then that's on you. But I knew deep down inside that that wasn't him. This was the drugs talking, and I wasn't giving up.
0: Right. You are a very understanding person. Chris, what was it like for you? So suddenly this guy shows up at your house. This guy, big
1: guy. Oh, man, it was bad, man. <laughs> uh, I see this guy unfold out of this little coop, right? Because his rental, he, Arno's like six something. He's, he's huge. And uh, this little sports car pulls in. It was his rental car from the airport, Melissa had left. She was like, I have to run to Walmart. So she went and met him at the Walmart and he followed her to the house. Well, when he gets there, he just kind of like unfolds out of this car. And uh, I was like, who the fuck is this? And I didn't think nothing of it. I thought it was somebody coming to buy some drugs. I would sell drugs to support my habit as well as I sold drugs for the clan. That was part of the way they made their money. And then uh, when he approved- approached me, you know, he, he told me that, you know, Melissa had reached out to him and he was, he was there in good faith. He was a friend. He wasn't my enemy. Uh, he was there to help me get sober. I don't remember much about that conversation. I, w- I was extremely high. I remember that we like, I, I got very nasty, very vulgar with my language. Uh, you know, I told him to get the fuck out of my yard. Like, remember I called him a race trader and a fucking coward. And you know, it was bad, man. Like, I'm not, a, I'm ashamed of that. I'm not proud of it in any way. But, you know, that was that initial response, that fear response to opposition of what I enjoyed. I thought, you know, and anybody that tells you they enjoy being addicted to drugs is a fucking liar. Okay. It's miserable. It is the most miserable feeling in the world that you can't do anything without having your drug. He said that he was going to stay in town for a few days. And I remember up the road, there was a little motel that he stayed at, close to the house, a couple miles. You know, that night, you know, me and Melissa didn't talk a whole lot that night. I remember we were getting ready for bed and I asked her, I was like, why is he here? Why did you call him? And she showed me a picture of myself when I was in the army, right when I come home. And I was like, 225 I was a brick wall I was huge I'm 5'8 225 that's that's big you know what I mean and then she put a picture of me from a few days prior to that right beside of it she was like I called him because you're gonna die you're gonna overdose and die I don't know what it was about that but I just felt instant shame and I remember I cried myself to sleep that night and uh I woke up the next morning and I asked her, I said, do you still have Arno's number? And she said, I absolutely do. I said, will you ask him to come back over and we can get off on the right foot? So he came over and we didn't talk about my ideology. We didn't talk about my involvement in white supremacy. We talked about my sickness, my addiction, you know, and we talked about getting sober, uh, Arnold told me about his battle with alcoholism and, you know, we built a, a bond, an organic, very natural, emotional bond with each other. Arnold worked with me for months on sobriety and I would get clean. I would relapse. I would get clean. I would relapse. And eventually I caught a charge. I remember the first person I called when I got to the jail, I had about, about a gram of, of methamphetamines on me in a, in a pipe. And, uh, I called Melissa, and she just started crying and hung up on me. I tried calling back. She wouldn't answer except the calls. And I really felt like at that point, like, I really done it. I broke her. I broke my rock. And I remember two days had went by, and they called me and said I had a visitor. And it was Arno. And uh, he wasn't mad. He said this had to happen. Everybody knew it was going to happen. And now it has. And now we can really get to work. You know, I went to court, I pled guilty, was sentenced first offender in Georgia, first offender to uh, a a nonviolent offense, drug offense, things like that. Uh, They put you on probation, community service fine, all that stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I requested a program called the DRC program. It's the Day Report Center. It's a drug rehab program out of custody. So, like, you go every day, you go to classes, you do the work, you drug test twice a week, three times a week. And then, you know, if you fail a drug test, you get locked up, right? Because you're on probation. And uh, it was the accountability that I needed. And I went through this program for a year. I was in the program for over a year. Then I come out of that program and I went to substance abuse aftercare services. Uh, And that was a year. During this two-year period, I've maintained my sobriety. Like, I haven't slipped up. I haven't failed a drug test. I've been sober for two years. Uh, I was going to meetings. I was getting my chips. And then Arno come and visit again. And he was like, all right, man, I'm like super proud of you. Like, uh, after the sobriety set in, like my cognitive shift happened. And I I always refer to this cognitive shift because a sober mind is your authentic self. An inebriated or or an addicted brain is not your, your authentic self. So obviously I'd started to pull away from, from the group. I started to not show up to meetings, like not maintain contact. And they were really reaching out and leaning like, Hey, what's going on, man? Why haven't you been in contact? You know? And I started to get really nervous because I knew that I didn't want to be involved anymore. During this two year period, Arno and me had been moonlighting on the side. We, we took a trip to LA uh, we went to Homeboy Industries. I got to meet Father Greg, Hector Verrugo. Arno was working on an intervention with me. And I was involved in a hate group who looked very, very down upon those sort of activities, right? Like, it's, uh, it's, it's not okay. And you'll be disciplined and violently. You know, I've seen guys be beaten within an inch of their life for getting caught sleeping with a mixed girl. You know what I mean? I've seen both of them be beaten, you know, or both of them are in the hospital. I mean, I didn't have any part in it, but I, it was very openly discussed and they use things like that to keep you in line. Fear keeps you in line. Um, and like I said, I was a member of the security area for the clan, so that was my gig. That's the things that I was responsible to take care of you know, and, and so I knew what was going to happen. And anybody that, you know, says that they wouldn't be scared in that, in that situation is once again, full of shit. Yeah. So, I mean, I had been through combat on three separate occasions and that was a scary prospect for me for what was going to happen. But, you know, the more me and Arno went on our field trips and went on our little bromance dates. uh, You know, we went to the midnight mission. We served the homeless. We went to, you know, visit an imam in his home. Uh, And his wife met me at the door and she said, listen, I know what you are and it's evil. And I want you to know that I was against you coming into our home where we pray, where it's holy to us and bringing that devil in with you. But my husband, who's an imam, who's, uh, you know, he's he's the religious leader of the church for his Muslim faith, was adamant that Arno bring me, these little acts of compassion. And Arno will tell you the same thing. If you ever have a chance to speak with Arno, he's amazing. You know, the same things are the reason that helped him get out of the movement. Acts of compassion that he knew he didn't deserve. So this imam inviting me into his home, it was the most terrifying thing I'd ever experienced. Out of everything that I had lumped into the things that I have to hate because of the organization, because it was part of the ideology, Did I hate black people? It was just part of the job for me. I didn't really have anything against black people, but it was just part of it, right? Mexicans, they don't really give a shit. I was there because I really hated homosexuals because of being molested by one as a kid. I just lumped all of them into the same kind of sick, twisted type of mentality that hurt me. It was a natural defense mechanism. I didn't realize that at the time, but I do now. The Muslims. I was I was in combat with them. They killed my best friend, in my arms. He lost his life, and that was the scariest, most terrifying thing I had ever witnessed to date. The scariest thing I'd ever been through. I had a legitimate, unbridled hatred for those two groups of people. So to be in an imam's house, very traditional imam, it is. He he lived in Cartersville, Georgia. I remember I got really mad at Arno because I told him, I said, Muslims are off the table. You don't get to tell me I'm not allowed to hate them for what they did. So we left Muslims off the table for a really long time. And eventually it was like, hey, secret time, we're here. Uh, This is Imam so-and-so, and and he's going to confront your ideology today. You're going to have a conversation with him, and you're going to participate. We're not leaving until you do. And, you know, at first it was very tense. But I had more of a relationship and a conversation with the man's wife, the one who was against me being there. And uh, by the end of that trip, I think we spent, what, like two hours down there, two or three hours. By the end of that trip, me and the man's wife, we hugged. She invited me back to go fishing with her husband. He invited me. He wanted to go fishing. He wanted to to catch fish, bring it home. His wife was going to fix a traditional Muslim dish. And, uh, I remember like everything I thought that I understood just crashed down around me. Like I was in this, this mentality that like, what the fuck have I done with my life for the last five years? You know? And so now this hunger of what else am I wrong about? What else can I, can I figure out? What else can I, can I challenge myself with? And the next obvious thing was, Arno told me, he was like, look, man, like, it's not about challenging yourself. It's about finding out why you feel the way you feel. Confronting that. So then the real hard work started. I had to confront Daniel's death. I had to confront my molestation. I had to confront the abuse of my father. I had to confront the the fact that I turned to drugs and substances instead of my wife. I had to confront the fact that during the time of using substances and, and abusing, you know, things that I neglected my family. I stepped out on my wife. There were a lot of things that I did that I'm not proud of. Uh, I mean, there was other women that I had to confront that I had to, there was a point where me and my wife sat down and I laid everything on the table, everything I had ever done. Everything that I wanted to get off my, t- I had to clear my conscience, you know? And, and I think that the beginning of me repairing my relationship with her was complete transparency and honesty. She had to know everything. I had to give her time to process and decide whether she wanted to pursue our life together. Confronting that possibility that the life that I had built to this point might not exist in the morning. Just really humbling myself.
0: Yes. The bravery that you show by even that moment where you say, well, what else? What else am I wrong about? What else have I been misguided about? What else has gone from a singular incident that I've broadened to an entire people, right? All homosexuals, all Muslims. And I think also just in terms of your friend, Daniel, who we can honor him with and have the show in his memory. But I think having that experience, I can imagine you might feel like befriending a Muslim might be betraying your friendship and your friend.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I just felt like I had betrayed everything that I had accomplished overseas. Like the whole reason I was over there was I was betraying the values and the morals that were instilled in me. I was turning my back on my comrades and I was sleeping with the enemy, so to speak. You know and and look so there's a lot of that in the military soldiers come home right now and they hate islam right and the reason being because we're trained to hate it we're trained to dehumanize it we're trained to disassociate humanity with that because it makes it easier for us if we have to take a life if we have to engage an enemy combatant and take that it's like killing a deer right if we could understand an animal and talk to it and associate with it and build a relationship with it, we couldn't do it. I'm an avid hunter. I could not shoot my dog. I couldn't, you know, because I have a relationship with that animal. It's part of my family. It's something I know. It's it's easy to hate something you don't know. And to 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 try to make that effort to know something goes against everything that is ingrained in you. And the military does this. It's very necessary. It has to be done. It's a part of desensitization so that you can accomplish your goal and your mission. But what the military doesn't do is they don't resensitize you. They don't reintegrate you. They give you a quick one-over life, limb, or eyesight, and you're back at the house in two weeks drinking beer. And then the PTSD kicks in. And then the, the spiral out of control, the substance abuse starts Possibly leading to the suicide. You know, 22 22 soldiers a day commit suicide.
0: 22
1: a day? 22 a day. There's a lot of soldiers that commit suicide a day. There's actually a project out there called the 22 a day project where soldiers and people will commit to do 22 push-ups every day in honor of the 22 soldiers that lose their lives to suicide. That's not okay. That tells you that there's a fucking flaw in the system. January 6th, was a direct byproduct of the U.S. military, the Department of Defense, and the Pentagon not incorporating deprogramming programs, de-radicalization programs into their demobilization bring-home project. It's not, it it costs too much money. We have to pay the soldiers even longer. Get them here, get them clear, get them to the house, and then they converge on the Capitol because they found themselves outside of the military they mobilized, they armed themselves, and then they attacked the U.S. government because the U.S. government failed them. Do we see the process here? This wasn't a terroristic attack by white supremacists. This was a terroristic attack by soldiers that the U.S. government failed. Look at the groups that converged on the Capitol. Yeah, they were MAGA supporters, lesser of the the situation, all right? They were soldiers, veterans, and And prior service members they were proud boys, O9E, e three percenters, oath keepers. these are all prior service paramilitary militia style groups. Where did they get that training? Better yet, where did they get their trauma?
0: Oof. I mean, that's an outgrowth of all of this and letting people down and and stirring them up to have that kind of hate and then and having them exposed to trauma and then not being cared for.
1: I implore the U.S. government to rethink their strategy on bringing soldiers home and transitioning them effectively back into civilization before they create a situation that they want to blame on the veteran and not on their own lack of competency.
0: Yes, and I think it's a a cautionary tale for a lot of people who also see a lot of veterans who are homeless. Uh, and then, you know, they're just moved from place to place and not honored in the way they should and not cared for. It just, it's rampant, it's all over. And I, you know, I think you you also have being, going back to this idea, and then Melissa, I want to bring you back into the conversation, but being in this home with this imam, that people will often say, you know, I hated, you know, Mexicans until I met one. I hated Jews until I met one. There's something about being able to, mingle get to know each other that that makes such a difference and it helps people see the humanity and it helps you see that you've been taught to see things through a certain lens i remember being in school one time and someone asking me if my horns fell off naturally during my adolescence or if i just hid them with my hair and i thought what did you just say this is a person at a university <laughs> okay okay and what did you? Oh, so the whole way that, you know, she was raised in and her pastor talk about, you know, Jews have horns like we're not we're not human. We're animals.
1: Well, I am very sorry that you had to experience that. I am embarrassed for that person, but it reminds me of just some of the, the craziness that that I allowed to, to populate my brain.
0: Right. And I think, you know, Potter, the reason that this person believed it is that she, she said, I've actually never met a Jewish person. I said, okay. But uh, so I decided to not just dismiss her, but instead see it as an opportunity for teaching. And I guess all of this really is all about that. It's all an opportunity for teaching, for healing. And so, you know, going back to this conversation that you had where you were just opening up everything, Melissa, I'm sure that was a huge moment for you just to have Chris just share everything and open his heart and reveal all that he's done. And what was it like to just sit there and hear it all?
2: Um, It was, it was an emotional process. Like, cause I was like, I knew that the person, I knew that that person was still deep down inside. It was just breaking away all of the, the negative to get that side out of him. Whenever I seen that, the, that the work that Arno was putting in was working, you know, it was not heartbreaking, but it was, it was very fulfilling because I knew that my son was at a, at an age to where, you know, this would just like kind of go over pretty easily. Like he wouldn't remember it. You know, there was times to where CJ would still pop off with the N word. And Chris was like, no, we don't say that. Even in this time, like our daughter, she was distant from Chris it was like she it was like she knew something was wrong so she distanced herself and in this time that he was you know he was getting sober you know he was working through these things she started having more to do with it and like that was that was really heartwarming for me because I knew that at this time everything
1: that you know I had hoped for is is working it's like she had the sense that everything was going to be okay
0: right yeah going from the getting the call from jail and you hanging up like that very low moment
2: I was upset with myself because I was like I felt like I gave up on him and I was like you know I felt like what I was doing you know you know wasn't the right thing like he was he was still into that mindset like I was I was terrified you know And every time that he got out of my sight and whenever he got that phone call, like I, whenever I got that phone call, it was like three in the morning and I had begged him not to leave the house. Something doesn't feel right. And he was like, no, it's always your what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. And I wanted to say, I told you so, but in the same token, I was like, that's, you know, that's not the right thing to say. And when I hung up, I was like, you know, he probably thought, you know, she's just She's done away with me, but no, that was, I had to get myself together because I was like, what happens now? What do I tell my kids? I, and I feel guilty because there were so many times that I was like, daddy's at work. Daddy's at work.
1: Daddy went to work for like six months.
2: Daddy, daddy did go to work though.
1: Daddy I did. went to
2: work on and himself.
1: I, I didn't realize how ironic the story that she told the kids because she didn't want to tell them daddy's in jail. But at the end, looking back on it, like, yeah, daddy really was at work. Daddy was at work on a deeply interpersonal, spiritual level. And daddy came back from work richer than he could ever imagine.
0: Beautifully said.
2: I never thought that I would, you know, ever experience anything like I experienced. And one thing that my family has always taught me is one thing is they always say don't run from, like, whenever there's an issue, don't run which I've learned a lot of my family, they tend to run a lot. They don't want to face the actions. And I wanted to be the exact opposite. I dug my heels in as well. I knew that when I seen this downward spiral, I knew that I had to be the stronger person. I knew that he was at a weak spot in his life. And at this time, you know, he was he was losing that, that strong will that he had. In his mind, he was still strong will. But I knew deep down inside that he needed somebody else to be that backbone for him. And that's whenever I was, I decided, you know, I was like, you know, I'm going to be that person. You know, I'm not going to run away from this. You know, everybody said run away. Just he's a grown boy. He'll fight it out himself. But he couldn't. I, You know, if a lot of people ask me, like, what do you do? Don't give up. You know, sometimes you have to be that stronger person. And that's what I want to teach my kids is like just whenever something seems hard and like it's a a losing battle, don't give up, keep trying, you know, like my boy, he gets mad, he'll, you know, we'll take him to batting practice, and he, he misses the balls, misses the balls, and he gets so upset, I'm like, dude, just sit down, take a breath, take a break, and get your bearings back together, and there was, there was a lot of times in the process that I was dealing with, and I had to deal with it on my own, I didn't have nobody to you know, say, sit down, take a breath, calm down, get your bearings back. So this was a battle, you know, I had my kids there with me and they would see me upset. And that was what made me push stronger is because I knew that these kids needed their daddy. And if I had to do everything by myself, it was, it was them that was keeping me stronger. And, you know, seeing them be upset because daddy wasn't home or, i seen daddy sick. That was what pushed me stronger to see, get him to where he needed to be. And I want my kids to do that as well. Just to not ever give up. Just push stronger.
0: Beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. That's right. You had to deal with this all on your own. My goodness. I mean, you're both very strong people. But part of what is important is also knowing that you have resources, knowing that you have backup and you reaching out to see like, how do I do this? Even just Googling it, such a smart idea because there are sometimes resources out there that people don't realize. And you got to find that out, which is really good to know.
1: The really cool thing was that when she Googled that, like Parents for Peace hadn't really taken off yet. So Parents for Peace didn't come up when you Google that. Now, when you Google how to get a loved one out of a hate group, it's Parents for Peace and me. You know, like it's, it's like, so I've taken and followed in Arno's footsteps and I've continued that contribution back to society. And I'll continue to do this work for the rest of my life. It's where my heart's at. It's what I love. And, you know, somebody said once that if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And uh, I'm doing what I love now. And, and I can't remember the last time I actually went to work instead of going to do what I love. Like, I mean, Parents for Peace gave me my life back. They get my kids their dad back and my wife their husband back. I want to I want to do the same thing and give people back their husbands, their their sons, their daughters, their moms. And that's that's my calling.
0: Sounds like a good one. Well, thank you to both of you for your time today, for sharing your story. It is so powerful. I know I'm going to get a lot of feedback. And I will pass it on to you because it's so supportive and people are relating to your story, even if their story is slightly different, just the ideas of needing to change your way of thinking uh, and how hard that is, but how important and vital actually it is at times. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be in touch. If there's anything else you wanted to share and let people know about or part of your story, just let me know.
1: Just throw that out there one more time that uh, if anybody out there listening uh, has a loved one or if they themselves are struggling with, uh, you know, somebody who might be susceptible to violent extremism or hate ideology, you know, or being recruited or groomed into an extremist group, feel free to reach out to Parents for Peace uh, and, you know, send us an email. We have a a helpline number and uh, just just reach out and, and we're there. That's what we do. So uh, they're not alone in this fight. And, uh, you know, reach out for reinforcement backups on its way.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you to both of you. Your your kids are lucky to have you as parents. And great to talk to both of you. Take care.
1: All right. You too. Bye bye.
0: Bye bye. Just a little note before the one more thing before you go. I sometimes reference music, lyrics, artists on this podcast. Music plays such an important part of the way we see things. And it is this soundtrack that at times helps us learn and helps us relate. And uh, over a year ago, during maybe even two years ago now on the podcast... Uh, towards the beginning, when I did two different episodes on indoctrination during apartheid in South Africa, I referenced the song Free Nelson Mandela. The version I'm most familiar with is the version by The Specials. And I got a lot of feedback from that, saying also how powerful that was for them, even people from South Africa, talking about how grateful they were to have That song and those words referenced. And then when Chris Buckley was on the show a few weeks ago, I referenced PIL talking about anger being an energy. In fact, their lyric is anger is an energy. And it is. And that's exactly what Chris was talking about that it stirs you up and it feeds off of itself. And this week, while Chris and Melissa were talking, I thought of Elvis Costello. He is one of my favorites. In fact, My caffeine in the morning, actually besides caffeine, besides a cup of coffee, is the song Strict Time. So there's a plug for the song Strict Time. Always gets me going in the morning. But there is a song called You Belong to Me. Now, there are a lot of artists who have done songs that have that title, You Belong to Me. But in this song by Elvis Costello, and I don't know the context and I don't know if it fits, but it fits for me. And because people were actually asking me If I was going to reference another song, if I had Chris back on, because so much of what he talked about reminded them of songs and song lyrics, I was actually thinking about this song and the following words. And you'll be able to understand why I'm talking about it if you heard Chris's last interview and also just if you heard the interview today. Things you say are getting hard to swallow. You're easily led but you're much too scared to follow. You've been warned. You're going to get torn. No uniform is going to keep you warm. The things you see are getting hard to swallow. You're easily led, but you much too scared to follow. More you're going to get torn. No uniform is going
1: to keep you warm.
0: One more thing before you go. Thank you so very much to Chris and Melissa Buckley. I can't tell you how powerful it was to sit down again with Chris and now this time also with his wife, Melissa. It is such a blessing that they've been able to turn their experiences into a lesson learned for them and a lesson taught for us. I'm so struck by the strength Chris has shown overcoming multiple traumas throughout his life from early on when he was just a young boy to succumbing to addiction later on, probably to quiet his demons and to help his pain, both physical and psychological. But as he says, nobody is happy when they are addicted. And he was feeling very low and wound up in jail And was at a very low point then, especially after calling Melissa from jail and having her not want to take that call, knowing that she had been so supportive. And that moment, I think, was just feeling like too much. I'm also doubly struck by the strength that Melissa showed and her perseverance. There are many things we do in our lives where we look back and we think, how the hell did we do that? And where did we find the strength? But also, there are times in our lives where we're left feeling that we had to be strong because there was no choice to be anything otherwise. Melissa showed how strong she was by taking all of this on her own and doing the research and finding parents for peace. I don't know how people do it. She did not have any family support. And she took her time. She dug her heels in. She must have felt somewhere like there was a chance. There was hope out there. She just had to find it. And all the while, people had been dismissing Chris. The people around her had been dismissing Chris. And just probably making her feel like she couldn't go to them for any kind of support or help during this time. We all dismiss people at times until we know what's in their heart, until we know what they're capable of in a positive way in this world. And that's what she saw in her husband. I'm also struck by the recurring theme of children here. When Melissa saw the video of her son participating in a rally that Chris had brought him to, it was, I think, among other things, the visual the thing that pushed her as a parent over the edge, here was this four-year-old, so excited to be a part of a rally for hate. It's bad enough when it's happening to the person you love, but it's tremendously bothersome and truly feels really scary to think about losing your children to this and to get involved in something like this as a child isn't even so much about the message, but it's about having closeness with your parent who is involved. But she was still not gonna let it happen under her watch. There are many times the faces of our children reflect things back to us. I know parents have, for example, had this moment where they used a swear word if they were raised not swearing, and suddenly that same word gets blurted out of the mouth of their two year old and It doesn't look right, and it doesn't sound right. While I know a lot of parents laugh when it happens, still they think, ooh, that shouldn't be said by someone who's still wearing diapers. You want to be able to preserve children's innocence, and babies are not born hating. Babies are not born thinking of themselves as superior to all others because of their race or nationality or religion. That is taught, and just as it can be taught, It can also be untaught, unlearned. When you know that kids are getting messages from the world around them, you want to be able to be the voice of reason. You want to be able to be the voice of equality, the voice of Maya Angelou, finding how we are more alike than unalike. While we hear on the news about all the organizations that have mobilized over the last two years As Chris also talks about, which is very frightening to me, and those are the organizations that we should be watching and we should be following because they're out to cause hurt and mayhem, and that will unfortunately be a part of what happens over the next few years if they gain strength and if they grow in number. And, by the way, I will be having a representative from the Anti-Defamation League on the show in a few weeks who will talk more about that. I think it's also good though to notice organizations like Parents for Peace and the other ones that are the unsung heroes. Sometimes people are doing work for good and that doesn't make the news. It doesn't make the news as much as the people who are creating disturbance and throwing grenades through windows, opening fire on those they want to eradicate, beating up people who are gay and trans and burning crosses on the lawns of blacks, Jews, Muslims, and others. So if you're feeling overwhelmed by all that is happening, all that's fueled by hate in the world, I encourage you to do your research, to find out how many organizations are out there trying to educate the public, putting together curriculum for children about how we are the same, and how many of the unsung heroes whose praises we could be singing and should be singing. Learn about these organizations, support them if you can, and be a part of them if you're so inclined. They're always looking for people to lend their voices to their work and for people to volunteer, because at any given time, there are usually more people involved in hate groups than in groups promoting loving your neighbor. Thank you again to Chris and to Melissa for being so open with us and for the important work they do talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at indoctrination podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrination show at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.